the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, on God, Amen. Tonight, our Bible study from the Gospel of John, chapter 17. It's 26 verses. We'll take only the first 13 verse of this chapter. Some church fathers speak about this chapter as the simplest in word and profoundest in thought in the whole Bible. It contains the words uttered by our Lord with eyes lifted up to heaven in prayer to the Father. It is often spoken of as the high priest's prayer. St. Clement of Alexandria says, in this prayer, John 17, Jesus is the high priest who acts on behalf of the people. In this deeply moving intercessory prayer, which is prayed aloud before the disciples, we became even more aware of his love to his church and his concern for those who have followed him. The chapter outline, from verse 1 to 5, Jesus prays for himself. From 6 to 19, Jesus prays for his disciples. And from 20 to 26, Jesus prays for all the believers. So, let's read verse 1. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. Jesus spoke these words. It refers to chapter 14, 15, and 16, the farewell speech to the disciples. And this speech are finished with words of giving assurance of victory. The last words of this discourse is, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Now Jesus Christ, the everlasting high priest, being ready to immediately offer himself up, offer, offer his body as a sacrifice. So by fervent prayers, consecrates himself to God the Father as a sacrifice and to us together with himself. He lifted up his eyes to heaven, to the throne of the divine majesty, the throne of his Father. And this is actually a prayer gesture. When we pray, we lift our eyes to heaven. Many of the Psalms of David, he said, I lifted up my eyes to heaven. Then he said, the hour has come. Before this moment, 
he often repeated that the hour had not yet come. Like in the wedding of Cana of Galilee, many times actually the Lord said, the hour had not yet come. But now here, surely refers to the hour had come, the time of my sacrifice had come, the time of my cross and the time of my death has come. He knew it. He knew it was coming. The hour which has so often presented itself as inevitable. He said before, for this hour I have come. He came to offer himself as a sacrifice. Also this hour is the hour of conflict with the prince of this world, the demons, Satan, and of complete acceptance of the Father's will. He obeyed unto death, the death of the cross. This hour was a time of great trouble, distress, and darkness. That's why it's also a time for prayer. When we feel stressed, facing tribulation, facing hardships, that is a very needed time to pray and to lift our eyes to heaven. He said, Father, glorify your Son. Jesus is God. So, as God, he needed no glory, nor any glory could be added to him. But he is speaking here as the incarnated Son of God as the mediator. The glory that the Lord asking here is the glory of his sacrificial death, resurrection, and ascension. As St. Paul said in Hebrews, he was crowned with glory in order that he may taste death for every man. The glory is also in the conflict with the, with the devil and the victorious combat with death and the resurrection. St. Augustine said, If the Son had died in the flesh and did not rise again, he would without doubt have not been glorified by the Father, nor would he have glorified the Father. Now that he is glorified in his resurrection through the Father, he also glorifies the Father through the preaching of his resurrection. This is revealed in the very arrangement of the word, glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. This means, raise me up so that through me the whole entire world may know you and glorify your name. And what I said about the Son, also I say about the Father. The Father in himself 
there is no glory could be added to him. But the word here, that your son also may glorify you, means to declare your glory to everybody. So when you raise me up from death, and people know that you raised me up from death, they know you, they will reconcile with you, then your glory will be declared and everybody will glorify you. Verse 2, as you have given him authority over all flesh, over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. So the authority to all flesh, but the eternal life will be given to as many as you have given him. God, our Lord Jesus Christ, had authority over all flesh. As he said also in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, all authority was given to me. He had possessed deity from the beginning. He is the creator of all. That would give him inherent power over all and authority over all flesh. That's why every person everywhere must obey the Lord Jesus Christ because he is the Lord of all. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He possessed glory with the Father even before the world began. And when he said authority over all flesh, not only one nation, the Jews, but all people of all nations. St. John Chrysostom said, if you say, what does the Lord mean by you have given him authority over all flesh? I answer, he has shown from the beginning that preaching him is not limited to the Jews alone, but extend to the entire world. Here he announces beforehand the first call to nations, to the Gentiles, after the Jews rejected him. For he had said previously, do not go into the ways of the Gentiles. But now he is saying, authority over all flesh. But the time came when he said, go therefore, make disciples of all the nations. He has shown that, that the Father desired that. End of quote. It is through the Son's glorification that God gives a man the opportunity to receive eternal life through knowing God the Father and Jesus Christ, his Son. That's why he said, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. You have given me authority over all flesh, and I will give eternal life to as many as 
you have given me. Mean, by the Father giving the Son glorification through his resurrection. Then the opportunity to receive eternal life is opened. It's open to all flesh. But unfortunately, not all person will receive eternal life. But as many as know the Father and His only begotten Son, these will receive eternal life. Verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So, having mentioned in verse 2, eternal life, the Lord Jesus Christ proceeds to describe in verse 3 how men may receive it. Many people, they ask, we know some friends who are very good people, but they don't believe in Jesus Christ, can be saved. Verse 3 answers this question. This is eternal life. The knowledge of God the Father. And the knowledge that the Father sent His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to redeem us and to save us. That is the eternal life. He shows in what its accomplishment consists. That in revealing to men the only true God through Jesus Christ. So the eternal life through revealing to all of us the only true God, God the Father, and His Son, Jesus Christ. As if he is saying, it is life eternal to know the Father, who is the only true God. That is the way to eternal life. Eternal life consists in the knowledge of the Father as the only being answering the ideal thought of God. Many people made images in their mind about God, but this will not lead them to eternal life. Eternal life when you know the only true God. And this knowledge is manifested by the Lord Jesus Christ, whom God anointed and sent into the world to declare the attributes and the character of the Father to us. And this knowledge is granted to us by the Holy Spirit. So eternal life is the knowledge of God the Father. This knowledge is manifested in His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, and granted to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. Only in the Logos, in the Son, who was made flesh, can we hear the voice of mercy, forgiveness, love, fatherhood, which come to men as the breath of life, so that they become living souls, eternal life. The word knowing that they may know you, 
knowing in this verse signifies not only the comprehension of God and of Christ in our mind. No. Knowing here means receiving Christ, believing in Him, loving Him, obeying Him, have union with Him. So the knowledge is not the intellectual knowledge, but the union with the Father, with the Son, and also to become children of God the Father. You know, in marriage, in the scripture, says, and Adam knows his wife Eve. So, this knowledge comes through the intimate relationship, through this bond of love, through this union together to be one flesh. In the same way, we the bride of Christ, unless we have this very, very intimate, this relationship, bond with the, with the Son, to be one with Him, and in Him will be children of God the Father. And the Holy Spirit is the one who is doing this bonding. Then this knowledge is not true. It's not the real knowledge. It's not the knowledge intended here in verse 3. Verse 4. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Again, God the Father could not be glorified by the addition of anything to his essential glory. Because his glory is full. We say, Holy, 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 Lord of Sabaoth, heaven and earth are full of your glory and honor. So, what did he mean here? I have glorified you on earth. By manifesting to the world the attributes of the Father, his goodness, his justice, his mercy, his truth, his wisdom, his forgiveness, and all other attributes. Also, in addition to this, the Son glorified the Father by finishing the work which he had given him in commission. God sent the Son to redeem the world. So by finishing this mission, by redeeming the world, he glorified the Father. In the same way, every day, you finish the work that God assigned you to do. You are glorifying God. And at the end of our life, if we finish the purpose for which we were created, we can say at the end of our life, I have glorified you in my life. The work that you give me to do, I have finished but how come the Lord Jesus Christ says, I finished the work. He did not yet die for the sins of the world. Which actually was the, the core of his work to accomplish, to save and to redeem us. 
he, here the Lord is speaking of what he was about to finish as if it's already done. Because this prayer was prayed about maybe 12 midnight of Good Friday before the arrival of Judas uh, to Gethsemane to arrest him. And he already left the upper room. So now he is speaking about the work that he will accomplish in few hours as if it's already done. In confident anticipation, Christ looks back from the point when all shall be accomplished and speak of the whole work of redemption as one act. So as if Christ stood beyond the time after the resurrection and now he is saying to the Father, everything I have accomplished. Verse 5. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. In this verse, actually, there are many doctrines. Number one, the Son in his hypostasis is distinct, is distinguished from the Father. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are one, but they are distinguished from each other. There is a heresy, the heresy of Sibelius. Sibelius said the Father is the Son, is the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, we called him the Father. In his incarnation, we called him the Son. When he descended on the Holy Spirit uh, as tongues of fire, we called him the Holy Spirit. But no, this is a heresy. Father, Son, Holy Spirit are not three names for the same being. No. They are not three uh, attributes of the same being. No. They are three hypostases distinct from each other and distinguished from each other. That's why he said, O Father, glorify me together with yourself. Together with yourself. So they are distinguished from each other. The second doctrine that the Son existing in glory with the Father from all eternity and working in obedience to the Father on earth, existing in glory with the Father now and forever. He told him, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world began. 
or before the world was. Which means his glory is the same like the glory of the Father. And he was glorified and is glorified and will be glorified. But in his incarnation, obedient to the Father, now he is asking as the incarnated Son of God that the Father may raise him up from death so he will be glorified and thus the Father will be glorified. So the Lord Jesus Christ make it very clear here that he possessed the divine glory and he pre-existed before the world was. But he and the Father and the Holy Spirit are one in essence. Verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they kept your word. Starting from verse 6, our Lord Jesus Christ, the divine intercessor, turns from praying for himself, because first five, five verses about he prayed for himself. But from verse 6, he turns from himself and from the approaching glory of his own person to meditate for the advantage of his disciples, to pray for his disciples on what had already been done for them and in them and to them. This meditation, he said it in a form of prayer to the Eternal Father. And he makes the series of facts on which he dwells the, the groundwork of the prayer, which follows for his disciples. So he will mention some facts. These facts are like the foundation upon which he will explain why he is praying these prayers for the disciples. He is praying here as representative of all, of every disciple who has come into relationship with the Father through him. So from 6 to 9 to 19, he is speaking or praying for those who received God the Father through Jesus Christ. He said, I have manifested your name to men whom you have given me. Number one, nature manifested the existence of God. 
as we say in the song, the heavens declare the glory of God. But the nature manifested the existence of God in some limited ways. St. Moses came and the prophets, and they declared God more to us, more than the nature. But when the incarnated Son of God was born, actually he is the perfect manifestation of God the Father. He manifested to us the love of the Father toward mankind. He manifested to us the characteristics of the Father. That's why he said, I have manifested your name to the men. Your name, not only the name. In the scripture, the word name means the entire personhood. It was main part of the ministry of our, our Lord Jesus Christ to reveal the name, to reveal the entire person of God the Father through his word, through his work, through his sacrifice. And one way that the Lord Jesus Christ revealed the divine name of God was by identifying repeatedly himself with the divine name, I am Jehovah. I told you before that I am Jehovah was mentioned how many times in the Gospel of John? Seven times. So this actually, seven times, he revealed the characteristic of God when he said, I am. But this revelation were only to the men whom you have given me. He means here primarily the disciples who followed him. But these words extend also to include all of us who accepted our Lord Jesus Christ through the ages. Those who listened to him and responded to him by faith. What does it mean to the men whom you have given me? You have given me referring to those who through faith belong to Christ. So, God the Father said to the Son, whoever believes in you and through you know me, I have given them to you to be your bride, to be one with you, and in you will be my children. So as if the Lord Jesus Christ say, we are belonging to the Father. And the Father presented us as a gift to be bride of Christ and heirs with Christ fellow heirs with Christ to inherit with him. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. 
these pe people were called out of the world. And by the way, church in Greek means ekeklisia. Ekeklisia means called out. Called out of the world. We are not of the world. We are called out of the world. They were yours. All of us belong to God the Father. You gave them to me to be my bride, the church. And they kept your word. They kept your word. Through the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ offered us to the Father, justified and qualified for the reconciliation with the Father. So, see here the beauty. God the Father gave us to the Son. The Son purified us, cleansed us, reconciled us through Him with the Father. Now, through this marriage with the Son, we became children of God the Father. As if he offered us back to this adoption that we were abandoned from this adoption because of our uh, disobedience in Adam and Eve. God, when created Adam and Eve, he created them for himself. Adam and Eve disobeyed God. So enmity between Adam and Eve and all their descendants to God the Father. There was enmity. God the Father sent his son, Jesus Christ. And he told him, these people who are disobedient to me, I want you to save them and to take them as your bride. Jesus died on the cross, sanctified us, and cleansed us, and took us to be his bride, and to be one in him. Then he reconciled us with the Father. He said to the Father, now they are justified, now they are righteous, now they are your children. When the father said to the son, they are your bride, means they will become members of your body. One with you. We are the body of Christ and he is the head. And in Christ we have the right to eternal inheritance. And the Lord actually praying and making intercession for us before the father. He is saying, they have kept your word. How beautiful when the son prays on my behalf before the father and say, my children have kept your word. They were steadfast in me and the son and continued in me and working through me. Verse 7. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. 
Now, these disciples, they have known that all things that you have given me, the words, the miracles, everything, they, they came from you. So, as a result of this union, and as a result of keeping the word of God and the truth, now they have known. So this is the result of our spiritual training. Yes, in its fullness, they have known in its fullness, there is still future. But as long as we are abiding in him, then what even will happen in the future is regarded as a present. When the Lord said, they have known all the, that all things which have given me are from you. He's speaking in the present. But the Lord looking at the future and saying these will abide in me and I abide in them. So he's speaking in the, about the future as if in the present. So, the main lesson that he was teaching them, and now they knew it, that the whole life of Christ, the words of Christ, the works of Christ, are manifestation of God the Father. That exactly verse 7 means. They have known that all things which you have given me to manifest to the world are from me. My life, my words, my works, my miracles, everything. This manifestation of the Father, it revealed to the world who the Father is. But how we attained this knowledge? Verse 8 explains. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So now the Lord is explaining how the disciples attained this knowledge. So, This knowledge, through my teaching, I taught them, I spoke to them. The words, for I have given them the word which you have given me. Which actually put responsibility on us as clergy and Sunday school servants. The importance of teaching. When we teach the truth, then actually this teaching will lead to the knowledge of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But as one part of responsibility on the teacher to teach, there is also responsibility on the disciple to receive. That's why he said, I have given them the words which have given me, and they have received them. I have given them 
and we have received them. Unfortunately, others had been taught, but they did not receive the word of God. The teaching was the same, but the varying effect was in the heart of the hearer. All of us now are hearing the word of God. But the word of God may produce some fruit in in some people and no fruit in others. Although the same word of God, what's the difference? It is the reception of the word of God in the hearer. And those who received what will happen to them, they have believed that you sent me. They have known that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost sinner, to redeem everybody and to perform everything necessary to their salvation. Verse 9. I pray for them. Again, how beautiful when you know that the Son is praying for us. I pray for them. I don't pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, and they are yours. I pray for them. I pray for them because they will be exposed very soon to dangers and trials. They will be exposed to hardships. They will be persecuted. Their blood will be shed. So, I am praying that you, God the Father, may protect them and your blessing may come upon them. But I don't pray for the world. How can we understand this word? This is not an assertion that he would never pray for the world or he had not already prayed for the world. Because the entire ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ is to manifest the love of the Father to the whole world. He came as the Lamb of God to carry away the sin of the whole world. He commanded his disciples even to pray for the enemies. And he himself on the cross, he prayed for those who killed him. And he said, I came to seek and to save the lost. And I did not come to call righteous, but to call sinner to repentance. I did not come to condemn, but to save the world. And actually, in chapter 17, in verse 21, he's praying for the world. He's praying for those who ultimately believe in him through the word of the disciples and their successors. So, we cannot make it a dogma that Christ is not praying for the world. But how can we understand these words? The point here, at this particular point, at this particular time, on the midnight of Good Friday. Now he is praying for the disciples, not for the world. 
Because the disciples, during the arrest of Jesus Christ, and during the three days after his uh, until his resurrection, they will face persecution, they will face hardship, and after his ascension to heaven and start ministry, they will face many hardships. So at this very particular point of time, now I am praying for the disciples. Now I am focusing all my prayer for my disciples, not for the world. But definitely, he's praying for all the world. Verse 10. And all mine are yours. The bride that you gave me, originally, yours, they are your children. And all mine are yours. Also, my glory is your glory. My attributes are your attributes. And all yours are mine. And I am glorified in them, in my disciples. Again, in verse 10, he is expressing his unity with the Father. All yours are mine, and all mine are yours, because you and me are one in essence, although we are distinguished. What does it mean when he said, and I am glorified in them? The Lord Jesus Christ now is saying, I rejoice because I am securing the faith of my disciples. This is victory and I'm glorified in them means even in spite of the hardships, the trial, the persecution, they will not deny my name. They will remain steadfast. And in this, I am glorified in them. Also, I am glorified in them when they preach my name to the whole world after my ascension and the descent of the Holy Spirit. I am glorified in them. I trusted them with this mission and they will glorify me and glorify the Holy Trinity. Verse 11, now I am no longer in the world. In 40 days I will ascend to heaven. But these, my disciples, are in the world. And I come to you, I will ascend to heaven and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me as if stealing him, they are yours, and you give them to me. So it is right, it is fitting and right, that to keep them in your holy name, keep through your name those whom you have given me, they are yours, keep them in your holy name, that they may be one as we are, that they may be one, they will be one, with me, and in me, they will be one with you and the Holy Spirit. Beautiful prayer. I'm no lo longer in the world. Again, the immediate future 
is still regarded as present. He's speaking about his ascension to heaven, but as it's happening right now. He is leaving the world, although he is still actually in the world, but he's speaking as if he already left the world. As if he's saying, my earthly ministry is over. For a while, I must leave them during my crucifixion. I will leave them in this merciless storm and they will feel sense of loss of his care, counsel, and they will be exposed to temptation. Peter denied, Mark fled naked. And then knowing the temptation that disciples will face after his ascension, and the oppression will be exercised on them to reject him in favor of the world. So Jesus now is praying for the disciples that they will be kept safe from this temptation. Keep them through your name. For, oh, Holy Father, keep through your holy name those whom you have given me. He prays that they will persevere, that they will remain true to the Father's commandment, when he said, keep them, keep them to persevere, keep them to be true to your commandments, that their bond to each other will be unity, which will reflect the unity and the oneness of the Holy Trinity. And when actually the Lord used Holy Father, Holy Father here, it's very fitting in opposition to the corrupted world. They are living in the corrupted world. That's why they need the Holy Father to keep them. When he told them, you have given me, as if he saying, they are your children. And now they are separated from the world. And now I commit them to you, the Holy Father, that you may keep them from the evil of the world. Verse 12. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. So as, as if he is saying, during my incarnation, I kept them in your name. Now I'm leaving. So now keep them in your name. I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So the disciples so far realized the manifestation of God through the whole life of Christ. And they know that Christ is the word of God, the utterness of God to their spirits. 
So he's praying that they may be kept in this knowledge in order that they may know the Father through the Son and thus they will become one with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now he's speaking about his earthly ministry as completed when I was with them in the world, was in the past, as if it's completed. And now he's explaining the influence of his ministry over the disciples. As a good shepherd, he watched over his flock with such care that none of them was perished except the son of perdition. Even for the son of perdition, Judas Iscariot, there was what the same watchfulness, the same guardianship was given as it was given to the remaining remained of the flock. But this son of perdition wandered away from the rest of the flock and was lost by his own will, by his own act. Judas obtained the blessing of discipleship, but willingly and wickedly corrupted that gift because of the love of money. Here the Lord is calling Judas son of perdition because he withdrew from the membership of the family of God. He became instead of son of God, son of perdition. Judas refused to be a child of God and insisted to be a son of Satan. The son of perdition is a very well-known idiom in Hebrew. This phrase is used in Isaiah 57 verse 4 to express the apostasy, the falling away of the Israelites. Son of Perdition also is used in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 3 when St. Paul spoke about the Antichrist, the man of sin that the scripture may be fulfilled. Which scripture? Psalm 41, 9, Psalm 109, verse 8. Uh, so these are some prophecies that were fulfilled about Judas. The last verse in our Bible study tonight, verse 13. But now I come to you in ascension, and these things I speak in the world, I mentioned all these things right now, that they, the disciples, may have my joy fulfilled in, them, in themselves. So the purpose of this prayer and the purpose of this course that his joy will be fulfilled in us. So as Jesus is going to the Father, he is praying this petition allowed in the hearing of the disciples that the disciples might recognize that the power of God is there for their protection so they may have this joy they will not be afraid when they face the hardships or the tribulation 
that as Christ had overcome the world, they will have no doubt about they will also overcome the world. He told them, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. He prays here that the joy of his people may not be diminished by his crucifixion, by his death, by his burial, or by the trials that they will face. And also, when they cannot rejoice anymore in his earthly presence with them, yet they will rejoice that he ascended to the Father, and he is our mediator and our intercessor, our high priest, interceding on our behalf before the Father. So we are still commended in his care, to his care. So as if he is praying that the disciples will find the highest joy even in his ascension to the Father and returning back to the bosom of the Father. The Lord Jesus Christ taught his disciples to desire such joy. Until now you did not ask anything in my name. Ask shall receive that your joy may be full. So he's asked us to desire such joy and peace. And especially they needed this prayer on the night of, of the Passion, on Good Friday. The joy here is what supported the Lord Jesus Christ during the time of sorrow and during the time of crucifixion. And this joy came from the presence of the Father with Jesus Christ. So he say, my joy that I'm experiencing right now, because of my union with you, I want the same joy to be in them through their union with you. So he would have them fulfilled with the abundance of this joy. As Christ was joyful during the time of the cross because he said, but I am not alone because the Father is with me. So he's assuring them that the Father will be with them during the time of tribulation and this joy will be in its fullness with them. This actually concludes our Bible study for tonight. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.